The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Some time ago, um, the first week of October was made into um, Earth Care Week by the Insight Meditation communities. There was a Insight Meditation teachers meeting and concern for uh, the environment was talked about and climate change. And there was the idea that the first week of October would be the week to celebrate, appreciate, uh, focus on Earth Care. And uh, since then I've heard that there's other uh, um, uh, spiritual groups who've also somehow adopted the first week of October, sometime week in October for this purpose as well. And um, so because of uh, the way it's working for us, our calendars, uh, this is the beginning of our Earth Care Week. So not much happens here because we don't plan ahead so much, but um, I'd like to give a talk on this topic. And, um, you know, the day of earth care. The, um, there's a in very interesting teaching from the Buddha that uh, he said the world, or he said, uh, uh, yeah, the world is found inside our bodies. The whole world is in our phantom lungs body. And um, so that's kind of, in, in, it's a whole, you know, that's a whole teaching in itself, but wh why he would say that. But it's fair to say that in Buddhism, there's no sharp line between the world out there and the world inside of here. There's a continuum that exists. And, uh, and so if we want to uh, care for uh, the earth, uh, we also want to care for the earth inside of us. If we want to care for nature, there's also the nature that's inside of us. And it turns out that for humans, those two go together, hand in hand that uh, without caring for our inner nature, for the earth inside of us, it's probably difficult to care for the world that's outside of us, and then vice versa. And, uh, and so this mutuality, uh, and ideally what Buddhist practice puts us on is uh, kind of uh, at the, at the um, meeting place of this uh, arbitrary meeting place of the world outside and the world inside, having us look uh, in both directions with uh, kindness, with care, with attention uh, to uh, the welfare of the world around us and the world inside of us and appreciating how these two go hand in hand. The, um, uh, in terms of the you know, earth care, I think the idea is caring for the external earth. And, um, and there's, a, I think, a wonderful quote by uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Part of it goes, uh, we will not fight to save what we do not love. And I think it's a very significant idea that we won't do anything to save the earth. It has to do with the environment, this quote, unless we, we love it. And, and the full quote is, um, or the full sentence, we cannot win this battle to save species and environments without f forging an, an emotional bond between ourselves and nature as well, for we will not fight to save what we do not love. So here in Redwood City, there's an interesting phenomena coming on, the growth of Redwood City. So if you've, if you've, if you've been in Redwood City for some time, you'll notice how it's growing. A lot of buildings. When I, I first moved here uh, now 17 years ago, 
And uh, Redwood City had a nickname back then, it Deadwood. Deadwood. <laughs> 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 you remember that. <laughs> and in fact, it was quite sad to walk downtown uh, in the evenings or in the on the weekends. Downtown Redwood City was kind of like a ghost town. <coughs> and uh, there'd be no one on the streets. There'd be one or two stores that were open and no one would be in them. And, and um, it was quite a very different town back then. And um, and it's slowly grown, and downtown now is kind of bursting with sh- with the restaurants and people, and uh, growth of lots of skyscraper uh, uh, skyscrapers. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, you know, tall apartment buildings they're building, and they keep building these apartment buildings. And part of the reason they're building it down there uh, is, as I understand it, is that um, uh, there's a feeling there's a needs to be more housing. But to have sprawl that goes up into the hillsides and takes away more of the natural world around here is not ideal. And so the idea is to concentrate it all around train stations, around transportation hubs. (coughs) And Redwood City has a train station. And so most of those things being built are relatively close to the train station. So you could walk to the trains and go to work or something. And also a little bus station in Redwood City is right there as well. And so it makes some sense to, if you're going to have growth and development to, and then also it's very much more efficient to preserve the natural world, to uh, concentrate people, uh, like ant hives get concentrated, and uh, everyone's kind of together and you know small place using less resources I suppose, and and not have to have so many cars driving long distances to get to work, just take public transportation up and down El Camino. Um, um, so all these things. So it's a lo- there's a lot of good logic to it, and some of it is goes into some kind of environmental thinking uh, to do things in a careful, caring way. But one of the side effects that I worry about is that um, there's not much of a natural world then in these apartment buildings. And so you're kind of, all these people are saving the environment, but they're losing touch with it. And, um, and so, um, I mean, there's not that far away to find it here, nearby. But still, it's easy to spend then much of your time uh, in an apartment disconnected to nature. Uh, some people have claimed that uh, many people in this country spend uh, 90% of their time indoors. And, uh, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, except that um, it's not a place to cultivate a strong connection to the natural world. And there's a lot of benefits to having a connection to the natural world for the individual. Uh, you know, uh, it's not a th- little bit uh, getting to the point, but I've now read it over the last many years, a number of studies where they did things like um, put a plant in, uh, just a simple plant, in the room of someone in an old age home. And the mood and the state of quality of life and everything and the you know, emotional well-being of the people went up to caring for a little plant. And they've also done it, where else they do it? Um, they've done it at businesses. Uh, in a variety of places, they've tried this plant experiment and people's moods, you know, do better. Just a plant. I've also heard of therapists who have moved their offices outdoors. And they claim that uh, having therapy outdoors in a natural place, like in a garden or something, uh, improves the therapy. It's more efficient. <laughs> and, um, and now I've heard there's a movement called Green Exercise. And that is, rather than going to these uh, dank you know, gyms, which are c- not really much of a natural environment, that you do exercise someplace outdoors 
And then yeah, there's a lot of psychological benefits from doing from doing it in that kind of environment. And so, um, you know, for much of human evolution, uh, it's something like 99% of uh, you know evolution of human beings was spent with close connection to the natural world. And um, and now 90% of time is spent indoors without that connection. And so th- things are lost in that lost a connection to the natural world, but it's more than a connection to the world. It also is a connection to ourselves. We change in re- uh, when we're in the natural world which, uh, one way, and we change a different way if we spend all day indoors in offices and cubicles and whatever we do. Um, uh, they, you know, there's a lot of people say that the leading cause for depression is rumination. So, uh, not the only cause, but the leading cause for it is rumination is the mind that spins and thinks and thinks. Uh, there are studies have been done that sh- uh, claim or show that uh, people who spend time in the natural world, going for hikes and stuff, they ruminate less, and uh, and their mental state improves. And I've noticed when I go hiking, I love going hiking in the local hills here. That um, maybe I ruminate less. Uh, but uh, more what happens to me is that um, is that uh, my mind stops jumping around to different things. It kind of gets organized or focused or harmonized. And I, st- I continue to think, but my thinking becomes creative. My thinking becomes kind of like I'm s- staying a subject for a while, I'm thinking creatively. I feel like I'm not just thinking kind of as a disembodied mind, but I'm thinking kind of coming out of my whole the ecosystem of my being in, the, in walking in there in the natural world and, and seeing the plants and the deer and all the things that are there. That uh, it's quite remarkable to see that change. So when they're building all these uh, uh, apartment buildings downtown, um, th- without the easy access to trees, and there's very few parks downtown, have you noticed, and down there. So there's, uh, you know, without losing that, um, it creates a different kind of mind. And, um, uh, and so what do people do if they don't have access to the natural world or if they don't spend time in the, in the some people call it the more than human world? Uh, what, what do they do? And um, some people go on the web. <laughs> and some of that behavior is addictive. You know, some of that is addictive behavior on the web, whether it's uh, you know s- s- searching for TV shows or for pornography or for um, shopping or for uh, politics, you know, and 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 that kind of behavior can be a little bit addictive, but it's not healthy. And it creates a different kind of mind and connection, and one that's disconnected to the natural world. There's a now this term atten- uh, nature deficit disorder, <laughs> which I think is a serious concern. Like children growing up, and uh, there's pl- I mean it's been going on for decades that there are children growing up in this country who have no connection to the natural world, and um, and uh, some people have specialized in bringing them to the natural world, and um, you know, and I've I've heard of people who've taken people take kids uh, growing up here in the Bay Area who've never seen the ocean, and taking them to see the ocean. And um, so, and the place where Diana Clark's going to do her uh, day lo- her, her afternoon sitting, 
uh, it's on the Baylands. It's a beautiful place. It's at a, a nonprofit. I think it's called uh, Environmental Volunteers. And they're an organization that specializes in bringing ki- kids into the natural world and educating them about nature. And they offered their space. There's a beautiful little building uh, on the Baylands. So it's kind of in the natural world where they have their offices and not they don't use them on the weekends. So, so um, it's kind of nice that we get to use it for you know, for a little sitting if you want to go this afternoon. And um, um, so I want to read you a um, what's been called a sermon by the Buddha. The first person I think I, I know who, who uh, referred to the sermon is T.S. Eliot, uh, the fire sermon. He, the t- title of part of one of his poems is the fire sermon. And uh, he says, T.S. Eliot, who I don't know if he's the expert to quote, uh, says that this is the Buddhist equivalent to the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and I read once many years ago that uh, a list of the hundred of the best speeches ever given in history. And uh, the Buddha's fire ceremony was listed there. I'm not sure I would have voted it that high, but, <laughs> but you know, it is a significant. And, uh, and for Buddhists, I think it can be quite a powerful uh, sermon. Um, I don't have the, the, um, the reading ability to read it in a way that I think would be dramatic. But uh, it can be quite dramatically read and impactful to read it. You'll get a sense of it, perhaps. Um, and um, so the, he's talking to his monastics, and so he says, uh, m- "Monastics, everything is burning. And what is the everything that is burning?" The eye is burning, forms are burning, eye consciousness is burning, eye contact is burning. And whatever feeling arises from eye contact as a condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hatred, with the fire of delusion, And then he goes on, the ear is burning, and sounds are burning, the mind is burning. He goes, goes, all the different senses, the nose is burning, the tongue is burning, the body is burning. And it's this repetition of it's burning, it's burning and burning. I think it it has a kind of rhetorical impact if it's done read in the right way or heard in the right ways. And uh, and, uh, so all is burning. And uh, I thought of reading this today because um, not a few people now have come to the conclusion that the earth is burning up. There's, cl- there's a, you know, climate is, is uh, going up and, um, and there's uh, it's quite a dramatic impact already that it's had on the world, that, uh, climate change and the human impact on the, cl- on, on the natural world. And, um, and some people are despairing some people, plenty of people for a long time now have said that we've actually gone beyond the, uh, the, the point of, of return 
and that uh, there's going to be major upheaval, major, major environmental destruct- destruction coming. I don't, really, I don't know if that's really the case, but uh, there's plenty of uh, well-educated people, well-studied people who are saying this. And, um, and there are people who have now uh, climate grief, climate anxiety, that apparently is quite strong. And the, the prim- one of the primary uh, representatives of um, wonderful, I think wonderful representatives of this uh, climate depression is uh, Greta Thunberg. And uh, she, uh, when she was 11, was so depressed about what she was reading about the environment that she dropped out of school and didn't speak for some time and uh, kind of withdrew completely into kind of depressed state. And, um, but maybe it was kind of like a shaman's journey to go that far into herself and to get silent and not talk. And then she came out the other side as a kind of, a, as a, I don't know, representative, a channel, a prophet kind of person who are now, you know, and so, uh, so you know, it had, it had a huge impact on her. Somehow she went through it to the other side. There are, there are people who are not coming through. There are people who are feeling a tremendous grief, tremendous depression and anxiety about what's happening with the natural world environment. Uh, there are parents who are quite upset and concerned about what they're bringing their kids up into. And uh, they, uh, some people are almost paralyzed about this kind of concern about what's all happening. There is healthy grief and there is healthy fear to be had and there's unhealthy versions of it. And being able to uh, recognize the difference between those two and to respect these emotions and be able to find our way through them is part of the task of mindfulness practice or Buddhist practice. We don't want to be disrespectful for these powerful emotions that we have, but we also don't want to be um, pulled down by them, buried by them, or frozen by them. Uh, if anything, we want to be empowered by them. We want to not take them so personally that, that we get stuck. And to be able to see this whole art of what, what it means to take it personally, to be caught in the personality of it, the, the personhood of it, to be caught in the <coughs> attachment we have around um, me, myself, and mine, and <coughs> responsibility, and grief, and being frozen, and l- losing our sense of um, uh, autonomy, losing our sense of personal mastery, losing a sense of purpose uh, in life, losing sense of belonging, kind of shutting down, is not healthy for anyone. And this has to do, now we're talking about <coughs> the environmental destruction of the inner earth, the inner environment. And so we have to care for that as well. And so to care for the inner environment uh, so that we are wise with it, we don't get stuck there, that we actually find a way to be free with our emotions, with our grief, with our, our, our concern, our worry, our fear about what's going on. So it doesn't limit us, but uh, it's, I think it's a powerful thing to say, so that it empowers us, so that uh, we want to do something about it. And there's uh, all kinds of things we can do. Then um, people say, well, it's, it's hopeless. Why should I, you know, it's, there's no, no turning around. Uh, it's not hopeless because at least you can save the inner environment. <laughs> at least, you, know, if the, you know, that counts too, what goes on in there. And then from that place from inside, 
of being freer and more compassionate and more caring and more at ease, uh, you know, from the inner work being done, (coughs) then perhaps it can spread from there into the world. Then we might have the capacity to love more the the world and do something about it. We can only, I I really put my my tremendous hope that uh, if we're going to, what Stephen Gould says, that we care for what we love. And if we're caught in despair and grief, that we can't have the love that's there. But if we can uh, connect to that and find that and be empowered from there, then I have a lot of hope for what can happen. And so one of the tasks uh, of our era, I think, for our times, is uh, not uh, to shame people into taking care of the environment, not to, uh, 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 I don't know, uh, I don't know how exactly to say, but I, maybe I won't say it, but uh, the task is to, I think, to help our fellow human beings begin to have a much greater appreciation for the natural world, to love it. And I don't know how much it's going to happen in the apartment building. Uh, but uh, maybe we have to have more apartment buildings, but we have to find some way to bring people into the natural world, to connect to it, to feel it, to be part of it, so that they uh, really begin to feel a different way. Uh, feel the healing qualities of the natural world, feel the inspiring qualities of it. Uh, Buddhists for generations have loved being in the natural world because there's something about the natural world that uh, teaches people not to be self-absorbed. And uh, being self-absorbed is considered one of the great diseases of Buddhism, caught up in self. And so to have that self-preoccupation dissolve is one of the uh, purposes of Buddhist meditation practice. Uh, it doesn't mean that we become you know, a pushover, but it means that we're not stuck on ourselves. And then we're more available to care for the world if we're not kind of like stuck in this inner apartment building or inner cubicle or some place that's very unnatural to kind of live in, in our minds. So um, one of the places where I go regularly to walk is right up nearby here. It's a place called Edgewood Park, and I love it there. And um, it was meant at one point to become a golf course, which is also nice. It's green and (laughs) sure that would have kept people outside. Then it was going to be suburban uh, development. Before I lived in Urban City, uh, my wife and I lived up in the in the these up on Skyline, up in the mountains here, and we lived on a open space preserve called um, called uh, Corte Madera Open Space Preserve. The people who bike mountain bike go there a lot, and um, and we were very lucky that uh, we, we rented a little room. In an old barn that belongs to the open space preserve, and we lived there for seven years. It was great, and we had we had hiking trails onto that preserve from our driveway. So we spent a lot of time hiking up there, and it was wonderful and a beautiful place to be. And um, it also was supposed to become suburbia, and that was the whole plan for it. It was going to be built up. So I'm very glad that these places weren't, because now I go to Edgewood, which is not so far from here, and I feel renewed. I feel this wonderful connection, and I've gone there to meditate, 
uh, in a quiet little corner of the place. I'd go there for hiking there. And, um, and that's been preserved and saved. And, uh, and this idea of saving what we have is not just uh, a, uh, you know, something that benefits the affluent people, but it actually is a way of saving the environment as well. Keeping enough trees and keeping a place for the natural uh, the animals and the species to survive. There's an endangered species on Edgewood that's now been saved, at least for now, uh, because it was made into a county park. Um, and there's all these wonderful people who have been spending years um, trying to protect the natural world, caring for it, so that we can benefit them now. So hopefully the people who are in those apartment buildings will go and use it. And uh, we could do more work in saving the natural environment. So one of the first groups that I knew that was actively involved in uh, trying to save the, nat- the natural world, the open space here on the peninsula, is a group called um, the Committee for Green Foothills, which was started 60 years ago. And um, one of the founders and the first president was Wallace Stegner. And Wallace Stegner uh, uh, lived in those foothills, in Los Altos, I guess. And uh, he was one of the great uh, American writers of the 20th century. And um, and uh, when that started, and they were beginning to work to try to uh, protect the, the open space, he wrote a letter. It's called um, um, His Wilderness Letter. It's somewhat famous now. And so this is what he wrote. Something will have gone out of us as a people if we ever let the remaining wilderness be destroyed. If we permit the last virgin forests to be turned into comic books and plastic cigarette cases. If we drive the few remaining members of the wild species into zoos or to extinction. If we pollute the last clean air and dirty the last clean streams and push our paved roads through the last of the silence so that never again will Americans be free in their own country from the noise, the exhaust, the stink of human and automotive waste. And so that never again can we have the chance to see, never a chance to see ourselves part of the environment of trees and rocks and soil, brother and sister to the other animals, part of the natural world and competent to belong in it. We simply need that wild country available to us, even if we never do more than drive to its edge and look in. For it can be a means of reassuring ourselves of our sanity as creatures, a part of the geography of hope. (coughs) The geography of hope. So, you know, this is part of our local history, is uh, the efforts of people like uh, uh, Wallace Stegner. And then we have, uh, uh, and then some, I don't know, 12 years later, the, I think the Mid-Peninsula Open Space uh, region, Regional, Mid-Peninsula Regional Open Space Trust, uh, Mid-Peninsula Regional Open Space District got started. And they've been uh, working hard to save all this, you know, lots of land. And this Corte Madera Open Space Preserve, where I used to live, was one of the th- acquisitions they were able to save from development. And uh, and that still goes on. Uh, I mentioned some weeks ago that um, there's some uh, 
uh, a place called Sargent Ranch down near San Luis Obispo, uh, no, sorry, uh, near uh, San Juan Batista, that is uh, the native uh, sacred ground for the Native Americans down there. And um, it's now in private hands of a corporation that wants to uh, mine it for uh, gravel and cement. And uh, there's that turns out there's that, uh, uh, um, I guess it's called tar. There's a, it's on San Andreas Fault. And there's all this uh, oil or tar reserves underneath. So they want to, uh, uh, you know, not mine it, uh, dig it, uh, drill it for oil or the tar and to destroy this, uh, this sacred land of the down there. So uh, uh, the idea is to uh, be great to save that. And so there are people working on that, trying to keep that very important piece of land down there beside that sacred sacredness for the n- Native uh, Americans down there. It's an important part of the local environment. So there's plenty of work to be done. And the fact that the Committee for uh, Green Foothills is working on it, opposed uh, the uh, Peninsula Open Space Trust, which is the nonprofit that's uh, raising money and doing a lot of this work saving land. The Sierra Club is doing this work around here. And um, this, I think, is extremely important for the health and welfare, for the caring of our local environment. And if we're going to care for the, uh, for the earth, um, we start locally, and then we spread from there. And um, so the most local place you can start is in yourself. Because if you don't figure out some way to really uh, uproot the degree of greed, hate, and delusion that you have, um, then we're not really messengers that other people can do the same thing. And a huge part of the environmental destruction we see in the world has its uh, origins in people's greed, big part greed, some, some degree of hatred, and some degree in complete ignorance and del- delusion of what's going on. And so to, uh, to really kind of get to the bottom of us in ourselves, um, so we know what we're talking about, we know what's possible, and we know how much happier we can be without those things. So that we don't have to uh, think that the way to be happy is to satisfy our greed, or satisfy our hatred, express our hatred. That the way to do it is the opposite. The image I have of reading uh, this, the fire sermon, everything is burning, is um, I, I had I have all these images from when I was a child of watching TV shows where there were people on horseback with fire sticks and they would throw them at you know the grass roofs of villages or towns or or on um, covered wagons or on teepees or whoever they, f- they were fighting and um, so uh, to me that represents how we're throwing our greed hate and delusion out onto the world and destroying tremendous amount. It's hard to imagine sometimes living here in the Bay Area how much more destruction is going on out in the rest of the world. Uh, We live a little bit protected here, but not too protected. And not for the people who look deeply. Um, Did you read the article recently about the amount of microplastic in the San Francisco Bay? There it's, you know, it's just like trillions of, you know, amounts, it's a phenomenal amount. And the, the kind of surprise for me, because I hadn't thought about it, uh, showing my ignorance, um, one of the big sources of some kind of these microparticles settling into the bay um, is, is uh, uh, the worn-off um, rubber and plastic from tar- car tires. 
you know, there's probably five million cars driving the Bay Area, right? And how much, how quickly does your tires wear down? Do you have to get new tires every five or six years? So that's a lot of car. That, that ha where does it go with that stuff? Have you ever thought about where it goes when it wears down? It goes on the road, a lot of it, and then it gets washed off and goes into the bay. Well, f five million cars doing that for, you know, 50 years or 100 years, that's a lot of stuff going into, the, into there. So I was kind of horrified to discover that uh, this also is going on right here locally. So how do we care for that? What do we do to care for this world? The more important question for me is not how do we care, but do we care? Do we want to care? And uh, I hope we want to care, and I'm convinced that the way to want to care is to love, is to be inspired, is to really take the time to feel a connection to the natural world that's really meaningful, that's really inspiring and joy-producing and freeing, uh, frees us from rumination, does really good things to us. If we just despair about it in, in from indoors, I don't think there's any hope. But if we can take our friends with us, the children we know, and, and share the natural world with them and have them kind of feel and be inspired and feel the joy of it and the light of it, picnic in the park with them, uh, and it just, they, don't, they don't have to even tell you, you don't have to tell them why you're doing it. But begin kind of finding a way to really delight and enjoy. So, if anything, I'd like to suggest in this Earth Care Week is that you um, really get to work, hard work, to enjoy yourself in the natural world. Please do. <laughs> really figure out how to get that, it, then I think you'll want to care for the natural world, for our environment. Then it'll feel like just second nature to do it. It just comes out of you. Of course you do that. It's not, a, it's not exactly a burden to do it. It's just, of course you would do that. Of course you would support some of these organizations that are saving the land. Of course you would try to figure out how not to have so much rubber go in, tires go into the bay. Of course. And that's even more, of course, if you're doing Buddhist practice. And the reason for that is um, one of the great delights of Buddhist practice that only the initiated can appreciate how delightful it is, how wonderful it is. And that is uh, how wonderful and delightful and happiness-producing it is to let go. Renunciation to do more, have more happiness from having less. To be content not to keep acquiring and acquiring and building and having and spending, but to, uh, to really uh, appreciate the delight and happiness from a very simple life. That going for a walk in a local park is, makes you more richer than going to the car dealer to find a new car that you don't really need. Where do you get most of your wealth? I, I suspect, I su suggest that people who know how to let go know they get most of their wealth, the inner wealth, from letting go and loving the world outside and loving the world inside. So without letting go, 
of consumption to some degree. You know, we can't care for this world. But we can't, it doesn't make sense to tell people to consume less unless they love consuming less. (laughs) And how do you love consuming less? By learning in your heart the light and happiness of a simple lifestyle, of letting go, of not kind of riding, being pushed around by greed and wanting and filling and, you know, all that. So I hope that uh, one of the ways that Buddhist practice, Buddhism, Buddhist practitioners can contribute to caring for this earth, for the world, is uh, to show how important it is to do this inner work so that we actually feel nourished and supported and delighted and in love as we passionately are empowered by our grief and our worry about what's happening. That's my hope. So um, get to work. (laughs) Enjoying yourself. Yes. I just wanted to share that um, one of the things that I've done in retirement is to train as a nature ed docent at Filoli. And one of the most fun times I had was taking inner city kids out right after it stopped raining. And they were um, absolutely ecstatic. And I have no idea if they have any opportunity to be in nature at all where they are. But um, I also wanted to share that A week from tomorrow is Columbus Day, or also known as Indigenous Peoples Day. And I will be leading a hike there. I do have a few free entrances for people, but they would need to speak with me. And then there's a $15 charge for the hike from 1 to 2.30. But focusing on the Indigenous people that used to live there. And this is not very far from Edgewood Park. And the nature preserve is entirely preserved. So I'm sorry, I know that's not really an IMC announcement, but um, I thought I would share that. It was nice, thank you. Especially it was nice to hear about uh, taking the inner city kids to Filoli. And we have about two or three more minutes. Has anyone else done anything similar like that? It's a nice, nice activity to, uh, yeah, you want to just tell us? If you can give the mic. Yeah. Um, is this on? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, um, you know, take hikes um, just um, near the hills and, you know, get a hike and often walk my dog and then look out. There's a point where I could see this beautiful scene of the bay. Um, but I have to say that uh, sometimes my experience is troubled with worry about what's going what's gonna to happen to this beautiful scene, you know, 10, 20, however many years from now. Um, and um, it kind of relates to the appreciating the present moment. I think there's a danger considering how much climate change might happen that, um, that uh, you know, we, we get worried, you know, that, that maybe we don't uh, fully appreciate what we have now and are worried about what will happen in the future. And it's kind of like, you know, death. We have to recognize 
that uh, that we're not going to be here in the future too. Yeah. But so I, I don't know if you have any comment about how to in best appreciate and love what we have now, even recognizing that some of that may change. Yeah, I think you spend time in it. It'll, that helps a lot. And then also to study your mind and to see how, where the mind gets stuck. Uh, if the mind gets stuck, that's probably a place that's going to pull you down, get, despair and give up. <clears throat> and uh, just because there's ideas that, uh, you know, in a hundred years or however long, it's all going to be, you know, we're all going to be extinct. <laughs> you know, it's all going to come to an end or whatever. Um, uh, maybe that's true. But uh, let's try to make... Uh, Let's try to improve things the best we can for the next decades. So don't give up. Don't just kind of go back to your apartment. Do the, do what you can. Yes, here. Uh, similar to uh, your Filoli group, uh, I used several years ago worked at a group home up in Ben Loman. I was a counselor there, and we brought in a nature program, uh, and we took a group of uh, kids who were from, you know, deepest darkest places uh and and hadn't had much contact with nature and uh we were able to to take an environmental ed program and, and take them to the pinnacles monument mm. uh which was a was a f- fabulous experience uh really actually opened up you, you could visibly see the difference not all the kids i mean yeah. a lot of them you know it's just gonna be another day but uh if you can touch one or two of their kids hearts and minds and, and expose them to that it was an amazing experience uh, more recently, I was two Fridays ago, I was walking along downtown and I was over the Redwood Creek Bridge and I was looking, I was trying to figure out what kind of fish. I could see a little school of fish that were uh, were bubbling up. Yeah. And uh, there was a lady uh, who was working, she had bi- ecologists or something on her little vest. And so I was asking her and she didn't know. And she's like, oh, tomorrow's the coastal cleanup day, which I had never, you know, I've heard about, but I didn't actually know that that was the day. So I went the next day and, and volunteered and we went various sites uh, throughout Redwood City. I guess it was a statewide thing, but that's one really, uh, you're, you speak of local action, a, a phenomenal way of getting involved, particularly uh, to visibly see the impact of the little pieces of plastic. I mean, you may drop it off miles from the from the, the bay, but the winds and the creeks and the watershed, everything's going to wash it out. So it really brings home the impact, but it also, in the same sense, provides a real a direct way that you can make an impact. I mean, you see the actual bags of, of garbage and things like that. We pulled out some weird things, you know, like a mattress and stuff mm-hmm. like stuff like that. All kinds of crazy stuff that were uh, were given away. But it's a it's one way that you can um, mediate the uh, uh, the the pain and the the, yeah. the anxiety over it because I too feel that. So okay. So um, <clears throat> Earth Care Week. <coughs> oh, one, one more? <coughs> Say one more and then we'll stop. And then we're, we're straight back there, I saw. <coughs> to your left. Okay. <coughs> <coughs> I'm a school teacher and I've been teaching for 30 years and my very first field trip was Hidden Villa, which is in Los Altos Hills. It's open to the public. Um, so, and I've been doing it for 30 years, and I run into students who are adults, and they tell me how much that field trip meant to them, and there's a whole curriculum around it. Be fantastic, So I yeah. recommend it for, and I take my, I used to take my son there when he was little, so it's open yeah, to yeah. the public. It's wonderful. We took our kids to Hiddenville as well, and um, I just went back there this, this week to see it, 
we we taught we uh, 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 offered uh, silent meditation retreats there for about ten years. We probably did about thirty or forty of them, week-long retreats in ten years before we had our own center at Hidden Villa. It's a beautiful uh, nature preserve and farm. And if you've never been there, it's really cool, especially for kids. They have cows. No, no they don't have cows anymore. Um, but, but they have no cows. Cows are done. No, I was just there. They said no, they told us, and I didn't see. It. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah, yeah, they, they told us, and I, I didn't. I walked around, and I didn't see any. <laughs> but there are goats and pigs. Uh, seeing the pigs is a trip, and chickens and uh, all kinds of things, and beautiful places to hike, and and it's a beautiful place. And um, and uh, th- what's nice about Hidden Villa? I mean, there's all kinds of reasons it's nice. Um, uh, it was uh, started by a couple called the Duvenecks. In the 1940s, they were the first people west of the Mississippi, I think, who started offering a summer camp in, in, on their farm, on their natural, for inner-city kids, for African-American kids. And this was a whole new thing to do, is to kind of social justice things, starting in the 40s. And so they've had that kind of social justice kind of concern ever since, and every summer they close down, kind of, uh, kind of. And anyway, they have all these camps, and inner city kids come there and, and use their camps. And then the Duvenecks also were some of the few people who went and tried to care for uh, the Japanese Americans who were in- interned uh, during World War II when they first were uh, brought into the uh, Japanese Americans were gathered together someplace up here in San Mateo. Um, uh, the Duvenecks, what? Yeah, we're Sarmantes now. Uh, the Duvenecks were some of the le- le- leaders in terms of um, bringing supplies and blankets and food and different things to care for the, you know, these people who were being neglected up there. And so the Duvenecks started um, the Peninsula School, and um, and then I, c- I don't quite know the connection, but um, somehow the Duvenecks, I think when they died, maybe they gave their house to the Quakers? They were Quakers. They were Quakers. And so th- they were responsible for uh, building the Quaker meeting house in Palo Alto, where we met. IMC started there. We were there, we were there for probably 15 years using that Quaker meeting house. And another thing they uh, somehow supported, uh, one way or other, was um, uh, the Zen Center in Mountain View. Uh, somehow money from the Duvenex ended up helping to buy that. And, um, and so this, this Hidden Villa and Duvenex, they're part of our extended family. I've, you know, so this, you know, all these wonderful things came out of that. And, and, uh, and it's, still, it's a gift still giving. So it's another example of people who can leave a legacy and a lot of good. And all these ins- I was there Wednesday, and it's all these inspired people there, young people who are working hard to keep it going, and they're farming, and they have a community-supported agriculture there now, and it's a great place in the peninsula. It's one of the treasures. So lots of things to enjoy around here. And um, you have a grim duty now, (laughs) (laughs) serious and grim duty to enjoy yourself more in the natural world. Please do. (laughs) Thank you.